a calorie's worth is relative to the physiologic status of the person ingesting that calorie. Mm, yep. So say it again for the people in the back. <laughs> so a calorie's worth is relative to the physiologic status of the person ingesting that calorie. discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor. What is up everyone and welcome to the Diabetes Podcast where we discuss how to take control of your health and gain the freedom to live the life that you deserve. I'm Gary Pano, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Grady Donahoe, who is a board-certified chiropractic internist. Welcome back to another episode of the Die Buddies podcast, everyone. So today... Dr. Grady and I are going to be doing something a little bit different than what we haven't done in the past. Um, and what we're going to be doing is we're actually going to be going through um, a paper that he and I both found interesting, and we're going to be kind of dissecting and talking about a little more. So it might have a little more minutia, but at the same time, this is kind of where the evidence base comes into treatment of diabetes and where our thoughts come from and how we spiral what we actually do when it comes to our own management and then, you know, how we would use nutrition with other patients. Mm -hmm. So, so um, this is before when we've done more research based, we kind of just, we realized we got to just throw a bunch of information at you. And so we're going to try to take a little bit slower today and just kind of talk through one individual paper. So with that, uh, Grady, what are we discussing today? So today we're discussing type two diabetes. Mm. Um, We've been talking a little bit more about type one, uh, but we want to show show some love to the type twos. Mm -hmm. And so with this one, um, we found a paper that was really interesting in regards to dietary intervention and type two diabetes. Um, there's a lot of research that's being done on dietary, um, different types of dietary interventions with type two diabetes. Um, but we found one that compared uh, low carbohydrate versus high car carbohydrate diets um, for type two diabetes management. Mm. Yeah, and so the title of this paper was, well, yeah, it's essentially what you just said: comparison of low and high carbohydrate diet type two management randomized trial. Same thing you just said, <laughs> but without the randomized trial. And the study was published in 2015 and is in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, which is a pretty well-known journal when it comes to this type of studies and topics. So uh, a credible journal for sure. So we'll just, we'll just kind of dive right into it. So the study was randomized, which means, and randomized trials are a very high level of, of evidence-based um, research because it just gets rid of all factors and, and tries to eliminate bias as much as possible. So they started out with 115 obese adults, right? And they would put, they randomized them to either the high carb, low fat diet, or the 
low carb, high fat diet, mm -hmm. right? And this, what was really interesting about the study that was done in 2015 is that it followed them for 52 weeks, which for anyone who doesn't know is a year. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it followed people on this diet for a year and with a whole bunch of other controls in it, including exercise and some other things that we'll talk about in a second too. Um, but even that was five years ago, it at the time was a big deal because it followed them for so long and it kind of separated itself with what some of the conclusions it found in the study. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, what are the parameters of the diet? So um, the low carb part of the diet versus the high carb diet um, that the, the study looked into. So the low carb diet um, was less than 50 grams of carbohydrate per day. And then the rest of their um, dietary intake was made up of 28% protein and 58% fat. Now, an important point to point out with this study um, that's actually kind of cool is that they, within that fat, they tried to make sure that it was a low saturated fat and mm -hmm. higher polysaturated fat. Mm -hmm. um, to kind of take out the complexity that can go along with those two types of fats and how they can affect the body. So do you think these researchers is more just for a control factor or do you think that since there is a lot of data out there, whether it's, you know, funded improperly or not, um, do you think it was mostly because they thought that saturated fat would raise LDL because there's a lot of data that says it does. And, you know, that's a big risk factor um, that has been determined by the American Heart Association and a bunch of others for cardiovascular disease. Do you think it was more for that or more of a control? Um, I think it was for both. Um, I think it was one, they wanted to really see, like their main goal with this paper was observing the effect of high carb versus low carb. It wasn't the fats. So to take out some of the um, other effects that different fats can play, making it more simple and hone in on, okay, what are the carbs doing versus the rest of the rest of the diet that they're eating. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, I think they recognize that, or at least in their description and in their paper, um, they comment a little bit on that as far as um, taking the reason why they um, take the, saturated fats out versus the polysaturated fats out is because um, in many papers, the saturated fats are, um, are tend to be, increase your cardiovascular risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is unfortunate because I think now in 2020, more and more people realize that saturated fat isn't the devil. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's not as evil as some older studies made it out to be. But nonetheless, uh, you know, we're not going to try to go to too many other studies right now. We're going to try to just understand the one that's in front of us. But mm -hmm. I also thought it was interesting that, and I'm not sure how much of it makes a difference. You know, I'm not a lipidologist or anything like that. Um, but in the low carb, so, and therefore high fat diets, they had a separation of the polyunsaturated fats. You know, uh, I guess they specifically describe it as 35% monounsaturated and then 13% polyunsaturated. Mm, so, yeah. so instead of just saying it's all polyunsaturated, they were specific with how that broke down. Um, and I'm sure, you know, that's 
information that these people need to know and, and report. But it's also interesting to think, okay, well, polyunsaturated fats and versus monounsaturated, like how much will that actually make a difference? So I thought mm-hmm. that was yeah. a unique description too. But so in general, though, all these, you know, participants had a 500 to a thousand calorie restriction, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, so they were placed in these diet groups, but they definitely don't hide the fact that they, that there was a calorie restriction in there. And a lot of people who try to argue against, um, that argue against people trying to be an advocate for a diet <laughs> will always say a calorie is a calorie mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter. And there is a lot of meta-analyses data and a lot of data out there that does show that, you know, when it comes to weight loss as your main goal, that the cal- it doesn't matter the diet, you know, high carb versus low carb, um, you will lose the same amount. And, you know, it's essentially the same and therefore it shouldn't matter. And a lot of people will try to argue that, mm-hmm. which I'm sure you don't agree with Grady. No. And it's also why I kind of like this study a lot because um, it does kind of address that point because they are making each diet the same, essentially the same amount of calorie deficit for each person. Um, and so that way it kind of takes out the variable of, well, this group was eating more calories than this group. Um, so there's no question there. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. And what I also really like about this study in terms of what they did in terms of following them for these 52 weeks is that they put exercise as part of it. Yeah. And I actually didn't like it as much. Mm. I liked it from a clinical aspect as a clinician because right. people need to do that to get healthier. Mm-hmm. But as like a peer research minded person reading this, I'm like, well, you're kind of adding another variable in there versus I would almost kind of like to see a study where it was just looking at the diet and how that alone affected um, their different blood markers that they did. Sure. But I mean, they included in there because yes, everything's going to have some variability to it, but they almost did it as a control because they say um, part of the introduction or abstract, you know, they talk about, you know, low carbohydrate diets have typically been assessed without the inclusion of control of physical activity as part of a comprehensive lifestyle modification program. Mm, and yeah. so, so yes, maybe it would have been more specific if it excluded, but at the same time being holistic yeah. which they talked about a couple of times in this paper, right? Um, that, that a lot of times being preventative and holistic is hard to study because it's so multifactorial. Mm-hmm. And at least in this study, they're attempting to show, okay, this is actually what people would do. So what does that actually look like? Yeah. And so people, everyone worked out for three days a week, um, non-consecutively, and they had personal trainers and they had people calling them and reminding them of their appointments. And they were encouraged if they missed it to make it up. And it doesn't, it doesn't really talk about in the paper um, and the data they presented, you know, the frequency at which people really missed or not. Mm-hmm. Unless, it, unless I missed it. I think they did, but it was very negligible. Um, like there, okay. there wasn't a lot of people who missed. And I thought it was, it was cool that they had them do it for 60 minutes Versus Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times I hear people recommending people do like 30 minutes, um, Mm -hmm. three times a week. And 
Um, I'm very much more for the 60 minutes, three times a week. Mm -hmm. And it's just way more realistic. Cause I mean, if you were trying to argue calories in and calories out and lose weight and change cardiovascular factors and change A1C, which A1C was the major outcome they were looking for and they had everything else was secondary. Yeah. So anyways, to kind of summarize the diets. So we talked about the low carbohydrate diet is less than 50 grams of carbohydrates. You have 28% protein and 58% fat. Now with the high carbohydrate diet, they had the participants intake 53% carbs, 17% protein, and 30% fat. And like we commented before, each group consumed the same amount of saturated fat, so that way they could take out that variability. Mm -hmm. um, and what I really liked about the study in regards to the diet is that they really monitored them fairly frequently as much as you can without being like overly, I don't know, like government watching. Um, <laughs> okay. Ron Swanson. Yeah. But, um, they monitored them pretty well. They, they met with a dietitian regularly. Um, and they were actually given certain foods that they should eat. And, mm -hmm. um, both diets were on the low glycemic index range for the foods that they had to eat which yeah. I thought was awesome. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it was a good, good way to control it, especially for a year. I yeah. mean, it's hard, it's hard to get people to change for like a little bit, mm -hmm. but to keep people interested and on task for a year, you know, that's, that's pretty hard. Like yeah. a lot of people don't keep the new year's resolutions. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, right? you know, it's sometime in March right now, like probably the majority of people are still doing whatever they thought they were going to at the beginning of the year. No judgment. Like, it's just, it's just and you can always is. start back hard. up yep. that's right best time to plant a tree was yesterday second best time is now so that's yep. okay um anyways and so all these people met like you said with dietitians and you know i kind of not everyone made it to the end of the study right mm -hmm. so um it was an even split initially between the everyone that started, it was 58 people in the low carb group and 57 people in the high carb group, but about 17 people withdrew from the low carb group and 21 people withdrew from the high carb group, meaning they couldn't, they just decided they were done. They had every right to say, you know, they didn't want to do it, whether it be work complications um, or not following up or health issues, you know, mm -hmm. that they were having during the time. Yeah, um, which I thought up, was kind of interesting because I hear a lot of people saying that the low car a low carbohydrate diet is harder to follow than a high carbohydrate diet. Yeah, the people that were excluded from the study, um, only one person was like stopped the low carbohydrate diet for health issues, and three people stopped because of health issues. Oh wow, yeah. Now people that finish, you know, they talk about adverse reactions in this paper too. So mm -hmm. there were other adverse reactions of people who finished it, but in terms of people that just gave, like, just didn't do it because not gave up, that's wrong, but just people that couldn't do it because of their health and they had to take care of themselves because it was too extreme. Maybe, maybe it was the workout. Maybe it was just the monitoring, like their health was declining for whatever reason they had to stop. And so, you know, one versus three isn't a big, <laughs> isn't a big yeah. difference, statistical <laughs> difference, but it's still interesting nonetheless. Mm-hmm. So there was 
a total of 41 people that finished the low carb and 37 people that finished the high carb diet. So, all right. So looking at the results that they got in the, basically all the different parameters that they were uh, measuring, which was actually quite extensive. Um, which mm-hmm. I, was, I was happy to see that. Um, so with both groups, um, they all showed, uh, or with both of these groups, they showed similar drops in a lot of different things. So um, with body weight, each group dropped about 10, to 10 kilograms of body weight um, no matter if that was the low carb group or the high carb group, they both, um, showed a drop in body weight. And in the, in a percent, they reported as 9.1%, which was huge. Which great. Mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, continue. And then with blood pressure, they both showed a decrease in blood pressure. Um, and so on this, this systolic range, they showed about a seven millimeter of mercury decrease in systolic blood pressure. Um, I didn't write down the diastolic because people like to focus on the systolic because it's a little bit more um, pertinent to cardiovascular disease. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's fair. Um, and then the hemoglobin A1C, which is, they said was their primary indicator, what they were really looking at. Um, was actually pretty much the same for both groups. So um, they both had a average drop of 1% in the hemoglobin A1C um, mm-hmm. over that year span. Which is still great. Like for a type 2 diabetic, like it's not easy to make that number move as mm-hmm. a type 2 diabetic. Like as type 1 diabetics, we have, because so many things influences blood sugar, we can very quickly change yeah. the situation either up, we're in. Either way up. Or way down. Right. But, you know, it's for type 2 diabetic, it's almost, um, it's much, it can be a slower process. It doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they both lost, you know, an average of one is pretty good. Yep. Um, they also looked at fasting glucose. Mm-hmm. And they both showed a similar drop, um, which was approximately one uh, millimole per liter um, between each group. Yeah, I'm looking at at one of the tables, and first of all, it being millimolar is always confusing for I know, Americans. It throws me off. Yeah, <laughs> like I don't want to do the stoichiometry conversion to yeah. figure it out. But uh, so the low carb group lost an average or a decrease in average by 1.3, and the high carb was decreased an average of 1.5. Ah, uh, yeah. So the fasting glucose of the high carb was 1.5 less. I got you. So, but the A1C was still the same. Um, and then they both showed a decrease in LDL cholesterol. I think it was very minimal, if I remember. I didn't even write it down. Yeah, it's uh, 0.1 for the low carb and 0.2 millimolar for for the high carb. Okay. So, so normally, you know, in, in the United States, we are not using millimolar per liter. We use some kind of mass. Um, okay. Usually milligrams per deciliter, I believe. Mm-hmm. So, so the LDL was, you know, pretty similar. The HDL was raised um, in both groups, which is a good thing. And the HDL was raised in the low carb group uh, by 0.1, so not a lot. <laughs> but the HDL was raised in the high carb group by 0.06, so even uh, less. 
Yeah. Triglycerides were both decreased in both groups. And so in the low carb group, they were decreased by 0.4 millimolars versus 0.01. So that's a pretty, that's a pretty big um, difference between Mm -hmm. those two groups. And that P value is 0.49. So it's not quite as, you know, fine as they would like it for a P value, but it's still a pretty big difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense with what we've described before with type two diabetes and how triglycerides are really um, produced a lot when you got a lot of high blood sugar um, because that liver is converting that sugar into fat and that's mainly triglycerides. So by um, creating a diet where you're decreasing your sugar, um, it makes sense why um, that would be affected more so. Boom. Physiology once again. (laughs) And, um, you know, another parameter they were looking at was just CRPC, reactive protein, marker for general inflammation. Um, went down 0.9 in the low carb group and 0.12 in the high carb group. So went down more in the high carb group. And then this was an interesting parameter that, you know, they used a, a scoring system on these type two obese patients um, of how much medications they were on. Mm-hmm. And we'll just say that with a scoring system was a way to assess what medications they were on for how long. And, you know, the fact there was a decrease in them. Mm-hmm. So overall there was a 0.5 decrease in the medications used by the scoring system in this study compared to a 0.2 difference in the high carb. So low carb, got rid of more medications in the scoring system compared to the high carb. And when I say got rid of, I mean, well, it could be just reduced the dosage, the frequency, got rid of them all together. It all depends on the situation, but they use a system to analyze that. And I thought that was just a really interesting thing to measure because polypharmacy and just, that's a, that's a really hard thing to do on top of a randomized controlled trial. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I loved it because when you're dealing with diabetes and you have medications, it's hard to then know because then the data isn't totally representative of what's actually going on. Because if they're decreasing their medications, then their blood sugar is getting better because they're having to take less of it. And Mm -hmm. so um, their blood sugar may be relatively the same, but if they're taking less medication, then in my opinion, they're improving more so than somebody who has to take more medication. Right. Right. No. So I I agree. So it was interesting, really good thing that they showed. And that was one of the major conclusions that they had was the triglycerides and the medications um, and the, and the fact about, um, you know, the HDLs, you know, these are all things that they ended up summarizing near the end um, compared to everything just being negligible. So Mm -hmm. um, I did want to point out too, that all these diabetics on average, um, and all these people in the study were diabetic for an average of seven. So the low carb group was seven years, plus or minus five standard deviation. And the high carb group was nine years, plus or minus seven standard deviation. Oh, okay. So, you know, we'll just kind of put them together and say these people were di- type two diabetic for like eight years yeah. on average um, between these groups that ended up finishing. So, mm. or starting rather, sorry. 
And then along with that decrease in um, diabetic medications, they also made a comment at the end in the discussion where um, there's actually more people in the lower carb low carbohydrate diet um, part of the group that actually was able to decrease their lipid lipid medication as well, mm. which I thought was kind of cool. Absolutely. Um, the last thing that we kind of want to cover with the results was the uh, glycemic variation um, or variability. And they did several different things. Uh, or they tested several different things to come up with this. They, and they put it in this formula, um, which I'm not going to go into because it was hard to understand just reading it. But essentially, the biggest thing was that they had people wear continuous glucose monitors, which I thought was really cool. Um, Absolutely. To, to see how their body is responding to these different foods and how much is it staying in a high range and how much is it staying in that normal range that they were shooting for. Um, and they found that the lower carbohydrate group spent more time in that optimal range than the high carbohydrate group. Um, so essentially what that means is the high carbohydrate group was or spent more time above range than did the lower carbohydrate group. Mm. So, and what I like about that is that, you know, we've talked about how you are not your number, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's not all about A1C. There are a lot of, there are factors that can change what A1C looks like. And what they've attempted to do with CGM and a couple other data points is they've tried to show how your blood sugar can change and the stability of it, you know, with as a different in a different way than just the A1C and the fasting glucose. So this is, I think, really cool because they, with the exercise, I mean, they really have tried to have a comprehensive look at what's happening to these people, mm -hmm. not just like you have a low A1C, you're obviously better. Well, that's not true because you yeah, have low exactly. A1C being yo-yoing like we've talked about in the past. So I think it's I, I think it's a really good data point um, that they've described, um, and you know, I think not just type one should be using CGMs, but type twos, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I believe they can, but I believe it's much harder for insurance company to cover a CGM for a type two diabetic compared to a type one. Yeah. Um, this is a little sidetrack. I once was fighting with an insurance company because they were no longer, they were started denying my test strips for my meter. Mm, yeah. And I was like, why, like what changed? Like, I don't understand. And they're like, oh, you can't use, like, why are you using, like, 8 to 15 a day? I was like, what do you mean, why? And they, I was like, you realize I'm type 1 diabetic, right? Yeah. And they're like, oh. And then they, like, check their computer. <laughs> like, somehow you got switched. And I was like, well, I, my, my beta cells didn't switch. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know what to tell you. And, but it was very clear, I mean, in terms of standard of care, like, what a type 1 needs to test your blood sugar compared to type 2 is more but yet that information for a type two diabetic is still that much important. Like it's mm -hmm. still very, very important. Oh yeah. So before, you know, the summary of all of this, you know, we kind of talked about what has decreased and changed with all these, with both groups. Um, we were talking before we start recording about the adverse effects that they saw during mm -hmm. this, um, which could be for a variety of reasons, but they reported that 21 participants um, reported musculoskeletal, ailments which i thought 
And I feel like that has way more to do with the physical activity. Yeah. And I think they commented on that. It was mainly to do with the physical activity than the diet, like, obviously. Like the participants in this study, their BMI, and again, I'm not shaming anybody that has a higher BMI, but their BMI was like 36 okay, on average. Yeah. You know, that's, that's higher up there on the scale. And if so, like you were saying, it does throw a different variable in there. Because if you are making everyone do the same thing, I mean, we know from physical activity, not everyone can do the same thing right away. Yeah, exactly. You know, so it's unfortunate that these people had physical ailments, but, um, you know, I guess that what happens when you try to make everybody do the same kind of workout, right? Mm -hmm. um, they also had plenty of other um, adverse effects. Three participants reported gastrointestinal disorders, things like um, diverticulitis. You know, that was one example of a GI disorder. On the high-carb diet, participants reported esophageal ulcers with H. pylori infection. One low-carb diet participant had a non-hospitalization of hypoglycemia incident. So it's just interesting that these people, you know, type 2 can have such a low blood sugar effect with these things. One person on the high-carb diet was hospitalized for arrhythmia in their mm, heart. Yeah. So... Uh, which suspected heart failure. So they thought that person was actually having heart failure. During oh, this yeah. So that's pretty extreme, right? So even that, you know, we might put somebody on these diets, the, there are things that need to be individualized mm -hmm. um, when it comes to actual clinical care. However, you know, the, it's, it's like, all right, what damned if you do, if damned if you don't, if you don't include and have this type of control in a randomized control trial, you know, you might not get the data that you need, like we're seeing here in the results. But if you didn't have this control, eh, then you wouldn't be getting the same results and people would question it. So it's like, mm -hmm. you know, it's humans, it's just unfortunate, but yeah. it's just kind of what's been happening. Yeah, these steps of studies are hard because there's so much variability with human beings. Mm -hmm. And when you're trying to observe them for a full year, just think about, just think about how much your diet changes in a year, like yeah. the ups and downs, like you go in and out of, you know, eating good, then you, you know, have a slip up and sometimes that slip up lasts a long time. And so to keep these people on the straight and narrow for a year is pretty impressive. But at the same time, you also question, you know, how well did they actually adhere to it? And like in between the times that they checked, checked in on them with the dietitian and whatnot um, because I'm sure I just knowing people in general and in working with patients um, I'm sure there was um, their fair shit of slip-ups with their diet absolutely and even in one of the tables in table three in the study they show that or they attempt to show you know the percentages and the grams of the total energy of the carbs of the protein the fat saturated you know they try to describe it all but it's all with standard deviation. Like, I mean, yeah. it's people, people's diets and life happens like, and this is a lot of people to try to control for, mm -hmm. you know, it's always good in meta analysis to see like thousand people, like hundreds of thousands of people. Like that's really cool to see, but yeah. you know, try to control for 115 people. That's, that's for a year. That's a yeah. hard job to do. Oh yeah. You know? So anyways, the, the study showed what they kind of summarized the study was that, it showed that a hypocaloric energy match, low carbon, high carb diet. So again, those diets that had similar calories, but they were a deficit of calories than what these people were having. 
and administers as part of a holistic lifestyle modification program. Love that they use those words in the paper, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, incorporating regular exercise, achieve weight loss, improve glycemic control, reduce cardiovascular risk factors, and obese adults with type 2 diabetes. Yeah, so stopping you right there, seeing that both groups lost weight and had several markers, especially glucose markers that improved, tells me that consistency is key with anything that you're doing health-wise. If you're in and out and up and down with your diet, you're going to have a hard time getting the results that you want. But if you stick to something and you do it for a long duration of time, you're going to start seeing the results that you want to see. So I think hammering home that point of, you know, find something and stick to it as much as you can. You know, be dedicated to it. Have the goals in mind and have your why set so that way when you are tempted with certain things that are outside of your diet or your um, plan, you need to stick to that because you have your why, you have your goals, and that's what helps you stay consistent. I agree with everything you just said, Grady, and I'm so proud of you. (laughs) (laughs) That was the most sincere human and inspirational I think I've ever heard. And um, you've definitely been hammering away the point of consistency, you know, throughout these episodes, but that was awesome. Um, People definitely are going to need to replay that again um, because that was great. So then they, they take another step and they say, in addition, so when they actually compared the high carb versus low carb diets, the low carb diet achieved greater reduction in diabetes medication and enhanced improvements in blood glucose stability and lipid profiles. So they thought based on their results, the lipid profiles, not all the lipid profiles, but some of the lipid profiles improved with the low carb diet. Yeah, Yeah, more so than the high carb diet. Correct. And um, I think that's, or that's why it was so important to look at all those different parameters versus just glycemic control or just um, the hemoglobin A1C. Because, like you've said before, the holistic approach is much more effective than just looking at one parameter. Um, Right. So by getting all of these parameters, we get to see, okay we see a decrease in um, the blood glucose markers, um, but we are also seeing a decrease in the health risks of other organ systems like the cardiovascular system or um, the kidneys or whatever it is. Um, We can actually see, okay, what's the whole effect of this diet versus let's just look at one parameter. Yep, absolutely. Um, And and that's just real life, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know, this is how it goes. Um, that's what needs to happen. It can't be just, uh, you know, when you change is hard, right? So it's like, when you do start to make change, you do make those new year's resolutions. You do want to change your life. You do sometimes need to start small mm-hmm. and you might need to start one thing at a time. But when you are consistent, like you said, and you slowly add things to it, you know, and then it just keeps getting a little more and a little more and then a little more improvement and more improvement, a little turns into a lot, you know, at the end of the day, you know, that's what you have is, is this huge improvement um, when you start with just making one small decision to change. Mm-hmm. So, so Will Smith tells a story about you not, you don't set out to build a wall. You set out to lay a brick as perfectly as possible. And you do that every day. And soon enough, you'll have a wall. 
Nice. I like so, it. Yeah. He tells the story obviously much better. <laughs> so, well, one, you know, the paper thing and the discussion continues to talk about some of the limitations. And I do think it's interesting that individuals um, with uncontrolled diabetes were excluded um, from the study at baseline. So people who had A1C higher than 11 were excluded from the study and essentially saying, or what I kind of internalized it as, you know, when your blood sugar is that out of control as a type two diabetic, you know, your metabolic syndrome, your hormones, everything is so out of whack. Mm -hmm. Um, For a randomized controlled trial, it would be way too many factors to try to comment on than if people were a little more closer to in the range or closer to what they wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just thought that was interesting that anyone above 11%, they did not include, um, but it makes sense why they didn't. But at the same time, it's like, okay, this does not then technically prove that you could do the same method with an 11% A1C from a purely research-based approach. But if from a clinical approach, of course, you're going to do very similar steps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, it makes sense because if you think about what we just talked about with the adverse uh, events that happened to the um, study population, just think of if they did have people who, or it did include people with a hemoglobin A1C of over 11, how many adverse effects or not necessarily effects from the study, but how many events would they have had that would have taken them out of the study where um, sure. cardiovascular events or what, what have you, um, that mm-hmm. would have ended up taking them out of the study. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's very true. And so, you know, you almost get, uh, you know, you write a good paper when people write papers commenting on your papers. Yeah. <laughs> and so in the same, literally in the same journal, um, another author wrote an editorial piece commenting on this study and was more or less just kind of saying their piece about what they thought was good, what they thought was bad about the study, what it added to the literature at that time in 2015. You know, now it's 2020, a couple months into 2020. There's plenty, there's a lot more data out there now. But this, Mm -hmm. again, was just something that we decided to talk about. But they summarize in saying that, for the most of the world does think a calorie is a calorie. Most of the industry, most of research thinks calorie is a calorie, but maybe this study in 2015 started to shift that conversation a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I like one of the quotes from that article um, where it says a calorie's worth is relative to the physiologic status of the person ingesting that calorie. Mm. Yep. So say it again for the people in the back. <laughs> So a calorie's worth is relative to the physiologic status of the person ingesting that calorie. Yep, absolutely. So how I eat one calorie, my physiology is going to be different than how you eat that one calorie, mm-hmm. your physiology. Like, and there's so many factors that play into that. Genetics, yeah. epigenetics, just there's so much. Mm-hmm. Hormones. Um, and so, yeah. I guess I should have said beforehand. So the title of the commentary was low fat, low carb debate and the theory of relativity was the title of the commentary editorial. Mm, yeah. So again, in the American journal of uh, clinical, clinical nutrition, but um, so yeah, it was, 
I think we can walk away from this study, this randomized controlled trial by saying, you know, if you do want to still argue calories in, calories out, you know, there's plenty, there is data that supports that, but studies like this in 15 and plenty that have come out since then have started to show more um, how, when you do study holistically, um, how calories are different and a low carb diet might be affect somebody different than a high carb diet, depending on the person. Mm-hmm. So cool. Well, that was a different type of episode and I hope it made sense to everyone listening. <laughs> yep. I hope you guys got value out of it. If, uh, if you have any comments, you liked it, you disliked it or any questions or concerns about it, we definitely want to hear from you. Um, cause we want to do things that provide value to our listeners. Right. So, um, feel free to share this podcast and this discussion with, with anybody. Um, you know, the more people that we share it with the more people hear the message and feel free to write a review. Uh, the more reviews and ratings are on Apple and Spotify, it starts to reach out to more people organically and through those systems as well. But, um, I guess we'll kind of end it with not advertisement, but, um, uh, Grady, what's uh, something that's, we haven't done burst my beta cell in a while. I know. Uh, so what, what's been bursting your beta cells recently? All right. So recently what's really been bursting my beta cells, we went on a, when I say we, uh, my brother and his wife and I went on a, a hike, um, in the area here. And I was just thinking about how, you know, cause it was really nice out. So I was in t-shirt and shorts. And so I'm already carrying my pump in my pocket. I'm carrying mm-hmm. my phone in my pocket. And, and then I'm thinking, well, I got to have something around to, in case I get low. So I always bring a juice box cause it's fairly compact. Um, and it's, you know, I know how much it's going to bring my butcher up and all that. Right. Um, but man, I really wish I didn't have to always think about bringing something with me on everything I do and having to carry it around. It's like, you can't, it's hard to be spontaneous when you're type one diabetic because Mm -hmm. you have to, you have to cover your, you cover your butt. Like you don't want to get out in the middle of nowhere and then have nothing. And then you're, you're just at the mercy of if you're with somebody, you're at the mercy of them. Or, you know, if you're by yourself, man, you're, you're, you're kind of at a big risk there. So, yep. um, that's, that's kind of a pain in the butt, but then also having to carry it around because you either got to have like, you know, maybe a bag that you can carry around. Like I have a, a tiny little backpack that I sometimes carry around if I have to carry around, you know, my checker and a bunch of other things or, you know, in this scenario with the hiking, I just had it in my pocket. So I got some big clunky juice box in my pocket um, <laughs> that's continually reminding me um, that I have something huge in my pocket every time I walk. Um, yep. And so it's, it can be, it can not allow me to enjoy the moment as much because there's that continual reminder there. Yeah. It's it definitely a stimulus that can easily take you out of the moment. Um, and that's why, you know, through chiropractic school, you and I train to try to be as present as possible with, mm-hmm. you know, chiropractic training culture and stuff like that. But yeah, it's, it's definitely frustrating when you do have to carry those things and you can't be spontaneous and um, it just makes things way more structured. I was low. I was at a Marquette basketball game um, a week or so ago 
and my blood sugar was dropping low and I paid $6 for Mr. Pitt. Oh man. And I was like, I don't eat like, I just, I'd rather have orange juice, but yeah. you know, it's, yeah, that's all I got there. And so I had, I bought Mr. Pibb for $6 and had half Oh my it. gosh. And then they took the top off. Oh <laughs> really? I didn't even like close it and like give it to somebody else and save it if I wanted to. Oh gosh. Um, but yeah, always having a juice box, always having your meter on you. Those are all things that are definitely very infuriating. And I've definitely had those moments when that just grind or grinds my gears or bursts my beta cells. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for me recently, you know, I've been really frustrated with just calling insurance companies over and over again. And um, like the little bit of story that I just said about the test trips, like, you know, when you're diabetic, you definitely spend a lot of time on the phone, at least mm-hmm. in the United States, you do, you know, trying to figure out, um, okay, like, did this doctor send this in? Why is this not covered? Why are you denying this? I definitely need this. You know, can I get this? And then go back and forth. And then you have to pick things up. And I don't know how much time I've spent on the phone specifically for diabetes and insurance companies. And it's just frustrating because it's not something that you and I decided we wanted, nor yeah. was it, you know, necessarily something who was type two diabetes decided they wanted, mm-hmm. you know, like it's just frustrating as all heck um, that you have to spend so much time and, th- and that's the situation, right? So at the end of the day, like, you know, it is my si- situation. I just kind of deal with it, but it's just like, man, definitely it's like i i just sometimes want to pull my hair out oh yeah yeah i don't i don't think i've met a person who likes talking to insurance companies Mm. um and i recently had to change my insurance companies and so now i'm in the process of trying to figure out all right what supplies are covered you know my test trips i think are going to have to change because it's not covered under my new insurance company so i'm going to have to change my test trips change my meter Um, Mm -hmm. then I got to make sure that my insulin is still covered or which type of insulin is still covered and all that jazz. So I'm going through a similar process and I'm just, Mm -hmm. my beta cells are bursting just as much. Yeah. It's, and then, you know, we are in a position where we can have those insurances and have those frustrations, but sometimes people can't. Mm -hmm. Obviously that's a very hot topic that we're not going to get into today uh, (laughs) because we want to make sure when we do talk about insurance companies and prices of insulin and things like that, that it's well organized Mm -hmm. and not so much ranting. Um, But sure enough, it will come. Yes. Anyways, thanks for listening, everybody. We appreciate it. Till next time. Peace. so much for listening to today's episode if you found value in today's conversation we would appreciate if you gave a five-star review it really helps us branch out our community and get our message across to those who really need to hear it if you want to interact with us on social media you can follow us on the die buddies podcast on facebook twitter and instagram or if you have any questions comments concerns or moral outrages you can email us at the die buddies podcast at gmail.com thanks